Welcome to Places, Everyone, a conversation about the balance of art and business. I'm Lonnie Firestone. In this episode, I want to find out what a producer does after he has a great idea. How does he convince the very first investors who want to be inspired, but aren't quite sure this is the idea to go with? This past spring at the Tony Awards, the musical The Band's Visit won in nearly every category. The actors who won, the book writer and composer, the director, the lighting designer, sound designer, and so on, they thanked someone in their acceptance speeches who made the whole production happen. Oren Wolf. Oren was the lead producer on the show. That means he didn't just raise money, he also raised the show itself from original concept to opening night on Broadway. And he made major creative decisions along the way, like who should direct, who should write the music. Perhaps the most foundational decision Oren made was deciding to approach the original film's director, Iran Kolirin, in the first place. Kolirin wasn't acquainted with musicals. He wasn't that interested. Oren had to convince him that the band's visit would work as a live musical, that it ought to be one. Oren pursued Kolirin for a year, a year, with the hope of convincing him. And that's before he even had a single check from investors. When all you've got is an idea, how do you convince the powers that be? That's today's episode. But first, on February 4th, the band's visit announced that it will play its final Broadway performance on April 7th, 2019. This June, the show will begin a national tour, starting in Providence and traveling for more than a year around the United States. Before I get to Oren, here's something interesting from the intersection of art and finance. Remember when Beyonce and Jay-Z filmed a music video at the Louvre Museum in Paris? The museum announced recently that it received a record 10.2 million visitors in 2018, according to Bloomberg. That wasn't all due to Beyonce and Jay-Z. The museum also presented an exhibition on French artist Delacroix that drew many visitors. And the Louvre is already the most visited museum in the world. But what Beyonce and Jay-Z did was attract new audiences who may have not otherwise been interested. It reminded me of the way Kendrick Lamar's Pulitzer Prize created new interest in the Pulitzer Awards among rap fans. Old institutions can certainly boost new artists, but it's fascinating when those same artists boost the old institutions. And now, here's my interview with Oren Wolf. Oren, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Pleasure to be here. I want to go back to Tony Award Night. The band's visit cleaned up winning acting categories, book writing, music and lyrics, directing, and the final award of the night, Best Musical. You've just delivered your acceptance speech, and now you're walking backstage and thinking about this seven-year approximate journey to becoming this real live entity. What are your thoughts looking back on this seven-year process in one evening? Maybe eight years by the time the Tony Awards happened. Yeah, it's like raising a child. An eight-year-old, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what's in your mind as it all culminates that night? Gratitude, I think, is what a lot of people feel if they've developed something for that long and then get to that point. For so many reasons, I mean, I think primarily is because the Tony Awards are sort of the largest advertising tool a show like mine has. You know, we're a small art house show. We don't have the benefit of a big brand or big movie stars. But what we have is this very quiet, artistic show, which I think has great integrity and is a beautiful expression of all of these 
creative people at the top of their game. You know, David Cromer, Yazbek, and Edomar Moses, and, and all the actors and musicians. But for a show like mine to have a moment on national television is huge, right, where you're reaching millions of people. But also, I think from an advertising point of view, it's always been difficult to sell our show from like a tagline or, you know, what they call an elevator pitch, mm -hmm. because there is it's a complicated story. There's a lot of subtle things that happen. So winning that all of a sudden gives you a soundbite. Mm -hmm. Hey, you want to go see that show? It won the Tony Award for Best Musical. So that's right. very helpful. So you no longer need to summarize it. You can simply say that's it was last sales. year's winner. Exactly. So all of our advertising since then has been about that message because it's quick. It's something you can communicate simply with a very few words and it has meaning. So I was really grateful that my show was given that award and that the industry recognized the band's visit that way. It gave me tools, I think, to extend the life and to ultimately make the show profitable, which it now is. And as we go into our sort of second year and we struggle now to go and find a wider audience for this show, that will continue to be useful to me, very useful. Probably my most useful advertising tool is that award. But then also grateful because I got to turn around and see my cast and see my company and see my co-producers, my partners, John Stiles and John Hart and all my investors. And I saw how happy everybody was. I felt really grateful that this whole community had something to celebrate, something that everybody believed in was, was recognized. So Yeah. I like that you mentioned advertising at the start because the band's visit actually has my favorite ad of any Broadway show. One of the ones it was used a few months ago, it may have preceded the Tonys. Yeah. Because as you mentioned, certainly now the ads would highlight that. Right. The ad I'm thinking of said, feel something different, which right. refers to a song in the latter half of the musical where one of the main characters, Dina, is singing about this Egyptian musician who's come to Israel where she lives, Tufik, and she can't quite articulate what draws him to her, but she is just magnetically pulled toward him. And he reminds her of the music she loved as a child, and it's something that she can't put into words. Mm -hmm. And alongside the phrase feel something different were all different quotes from critics referring to the show in mostly praiseworthy ways, saying, you will feel something different in this show. Right. It, it feels to like me, a dream. It feels up, like this. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It, to me, it's summed up what you're referring to, where you can't quite articulate the plot of a show where not much happens, yeah. but where the emotions are swelling. Yeah. It was a beautiful ad campaign. Our agency, AKA, and the partner there, Liz Furs, who has been working with me on this since the beginning, they really worked very hard on that particular campaign. That was a passion project of theirs. And it was exactly as you describe it. I mean, this show is ultimately about people that are very foreign to each other, not only from where they're from, but the language they speak, the culture, political differences coming together, ultimately making the others feel something. That's what this shows. You get to watch people be made to feel something that they would otherwise not feel had these strangers not come into their lives. Mm -hmm. So that quote has all sorts of resonance, right? It's describing what the characters are feeling. It ultimately describes what we hope the audience feels. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, it's a lyric in the show. And certainly the critics in a lot of their reviews talked about how the show made them feel. That was something that we saw a lot in the way critics wrote about the show. Yeah. So the musical is about a small Israeli town where a band of Egyptian musicians come in accidentally on their way to a larger city for a big performance. They find themselves lost. And the local residents of this small desert town take them in in a very unassuming uh, and lovely way. And then over the course of one night, they forge different kinds of deep, real connections. 
But because so little happens, there's an emphasis on what is happening beneath the surface. And I think so much of the intrigue of the show is that because it's Egyptians and Israelis, there's the assumption or expectation of conflict. And it's almost subverted by not happening. What was your initial pull toward this story when you first saw it as a film? I think you touched on some of it. I've thought about that a lot, and I've looked at this question in a number of different ways. But when I watched the film with my wife, Shiri, who you know, I turned her right when the credits were rolling and had this like urgent and immediate impulse to say, oh, I want to adapt this for the stage, which is not something I go around feeling or claiming very often in my life. In fact, I think it's only happened to me like on one or two other things. And I think some of the themes that I was drawn to in the film, the musical really honors the film. We never felt the need to run away from it. We always tried to embrace it. But I love the idea that these people were stuck in one location for a night. I always felt that the notion of being stuck in a single location was inherently a theatrical problem and made for great theater, where I think it's actually not a very cinematic problem, Mm -hmm. (laughs) although the film was very successful and beautifully made. So I love that. A lot of the plays that I grew up affected by as a kid and as a student were similar. When I think of Beckett or Mamet or Shepard or Ionesco or Chekhov, all these great writers always dealt with this notion of people being trapped in a place. Hmm. It's common. And I think that's why, because it leads for good theater. It leads for good uh, mixing of characters. I love the fact that all these people were speaking in a second language. Mm -hmm. The common thing they had, these Egyptians speak in Arabic and the Israelis speak in Hebrew. So the thread, the connective tissue they have is English, which none of them speak as their first language. And when you listen to someone who's speaking in a second language, which we've all experienced that, you're aware of how people have to work harder to come up with the right words. They have to be more careful with the words they use. I think that's an inherently theatrical thing to make an actor go through. Theater is a place where we give more power to words. This was a good way of celebrating that idea. And I love the idea that there were these musicians that were lost with these Arabic instruments. So there was this great opportunity for live music, which is why I think ultimately music became such a part of the DNA of the show and how we tell the story. Mm -hmm. Because in actuality, it's not like they're just talking, 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 and then they sing about whatever they were talking about. A lot of times in our show, music seeps in as if this band was just hanging out outside and they just decide to pick up their instruments and start playing. Yeah. Somewhat more of a naturalistic approach, I think. And I think one of the exciting parts for audience members, particularly those who come repeatedly, is that the interstitial moments between scenes and the band's performance as the encore involves improvisation every night. There is a lot of improvisation, which is very much a part of traditional Arabic music in the style that we're playing in, in the style of Unkutum, and also Klezmer, which we touch on. Yeah, a lot of improvisation. It does. There's different sounds coming out of those instruments every night. Yeah, it's a great aspect of the show. Yeah, I agree. So you approach Iran Kolarin, the director of the film, Mm -hmm. and he is initially uninterested. Yeah. How do you convince him? I have my own version of that story. And Iran and I have talked about this over the years. It happened over the course of a few meetings. It took me about a year just to get him to meet with me. And it meant me going to Israel, taking a taxi to the street where he lived and (laughs) saying, hey, come downstairs and have a cup of coffee. But there was a... He, he kept saying no. He kept shrugging this off as not a good idea. He had also worked on this film for 10 years of his life. And the film was very successful. In fact, to date, I think it's the most successful film ever to come out of Israel. Wow. So Iran put it away and said, no, this was successful. Why do I want to reopen this? And he also had no interest or understanding of theater. It just wasn't his medium. He didn't know it, didn't watch a lot of it. Eventually, I was persistent. And eventually, I said something that I think resonated with him, which was, 
you're a great filmmaker. That's what you know. And you are passionate about telling this story. But my guess is that if you understood theater as well as you understood film, even you may have chosen to make this a piece of theater. Hmm. My memory is that that allowed him to lean in a little bit. And I think as an artist, he became curious, like, oh, there's maybe more to explore. So my first question after I got him to lean in was, why don't you send me some old drafts of the film? I'd be curious to know if there is a lot more that exists that never made its way into the film. The film is very sparse, as is the musical. But we were able to actually bring out other characters and other moments that he had originally written that couldn't find their way into the film. And we were able to make room for them in the musical. So I think that was how ultimately he came around. And then ultimately over the years became very close to me and very close to this process. So the way you describe it, besides standing outside of his bedroom window, <laughs> sounds so Throwing fluid. Stone at the window. <laughs> yeah. But truly the work of being a producer in this kind of realm is convincing someone that your idea is a good idea. And you have to do it in a way that is likable and personable, but also persistent, but also influential. How yeah. do you combine all those things? I mean, this wouldn't have gotten off the ground if you hadn't shown that kind no, of the tenacity. Persistence is especially work like this. If you look at most things that happen on Broadway now, um, they're based really on brands. I and mean, that's branded entertainment because of the cost of Broadway and because of the limited number of venues. There are certainly lots of exceptions each year. A lot of these branded shows are beautiful and really well made. But to try and get something like this funded as your first time lead producer of a project, right? I mean, I had been involved with other shows before, but this is the first one I had been in charge of mm -hmm. as the sort of sole point person, not only financially, but also artistically. I was sort of at the center of that process to work and hire and engage all these, these writers and composers, et cetera. So yeah, there's an additional challenge to then take something as obscure as this film that's as inherently uncommercial as this film, right? This is not a big musical with big dance numbers and big belting songs, and this is not pop music. This isn't popular entertainment. This is very culturally specific. So it was a huge risk. And that first few years of development, I was really underwriting myself. And then when I actually started to bring in partners and raise money, it was incredibly difficult to raise money for the original off-Broadway production at the Atlantic Theater, which we helped finance. It was really tough. And thankfully, I had these partners like John Stiles and John Hart, who were amazing and who came in pre the Atlantic, and they took that risk with me. Once The Atlantic happened and the critics came and sort of stamped their approval on our show, then it became much easier. Then, then the fast track to Broadway was more clear and we were able to sort of use that momentum. Yeah. So I really want to zero in on that because now that you have this Tony Award for this enormously successful show, even as it is still advertising and trying to continue its profit making business and so on, because it has racked up so many wonderful Tony Awards and other awards uh, off Broadway, it's fair to say that when you go in for the, that next meeting with an investor or with a director of a film that you love somewhere, you'll have that access point be much shorter yeah. and more direct. But I, I really want to go back to how you get to that point. So you, you are convincing this director and you're also trying to talk to the very first investors and you're just using the powers of persuasion and your general like schmoozing talents. What are those conversations like? They're passionate. I believe firmly that those early investors invested in me. My persistence and my ability to make the band's visit happen over that long a period of time was entirely because of my clarity of my vision. I had a real strong impulse 
creating something and what I wanted to create, the tone of what I wanted to create and how I wanted to create it. And it was the clarity of that impulse that kept me going. Not only did it keep me focused in those meetings with those investors who ultimately would decide to support me because I got them excited about the clarity of my idea, but it also got me through the creative process. I worked with lots of different writers. I worked with lots of different musical collaborators and, and directors, et cetera. It was the clarity of my vision and my impulse that allowed me to go down many different paths, many of which were wrong. Mm -hmm. and, and then having to take a big step back and say, yeah, I worked on it with this person for years and now we can't go forward with that person anymore. It wasn't working. So we're going to go back and take a deep breath and start over. It was the creative clarity that I had that allowed me to do that. And that made me confident that I wasn't willing to produce this show incorrectly. I was only interested in producing it the way I wanted to produce it. And if I couldn't do it that way, at any point during this process, I would have stopped. Hmm. I think that's my memory of how I felt. So I feel very lucky that I felt as connected. If I didn't feel as connected to this thing artistically as I did when I first saw that film, I don't think I would have had the know-how to navigate eight years of development into a big commercial run until you go around the subway and you see that ad say so you can feel something different. Like yeah. everything that led to that ad, which was eight years of creative work, would have been hard for me. And thinking ahead of like future projects and other things that I'm now working on, there's a big distinction now. Like I have one or two things that I feel as passionate about and I'm approaching those in a very similar way. Mm -hmm. I'm trusting my instincts, but there's a whole load of other things that I'm not necessarily looking at creatively in that way. And I'm supporting them for financial reasons, right? I can, I can support something that I think might make money and I can bring some money to the table or I can support something that I think would have a good life on tour. And I'll support a project in the hopes that I can then help tour it. But that creative developmental process, I don't know if I could do it any other way if I didn't have that connection. Yeah. So when you mentioned earlier that the investors are investing in you, maybe as much as the idea. Those, or maybe, early, those early investors is what I was referring to. Uh huh. Maybe more than the idea. They're investing in you because they trust you and they think you have a solid credibility. Well, I had no credibility. <laughs> I mean, I'd never done it, right? So right. I don't think it was credibility. Well, to be fair, you had a Tony Award for once. Well, yeah, but with ones, which was incredible, and I loved being a part of it, and I loved my role in it. But my role was very simple. I mean, I was there. I helped put money together to support it early on, but I wasn't the decision maker. I did not produce that show. I was a co-producer. I supported that show, but I was not the producer. This was something that I had to produce. So truly, I had no credibility. Maybe people had some sense that I had good taste because I'd made some good investments. But ultimately, the people who actually wrote checks that early, which was an extremely risky thing to do, I have to believe they did it because I was able to get them excited about it. Isn't good taste so much of what keeps a producer in business? Yeah. I mean, well, good taste is very subjective. I guess whatever your taste is, if it's taste that ultimately leads to shows that make money, that's what keeps you in business, right? I mean, it's a commercial industry. We're here to make money. So ultimately, you may love or hate a show, but if your show makes money, investors will respond to that. You also can have a show that's beautifully executed and brilliant. You can do it 10 times in a row. And if they all lose money, you may end up losing investors, regardless of how critically successful your shows are. Yeah. You can create brilliant works of art. You can bring important artists into the world. But I think there is a desire to make a profit. It's a commercial industry. That's what we're doing here. So the Tony Awards celebrate excellence in Broadway theater, but so many of the shows begin elsewhere, usually in an off-Broadway theater in New York or at a regional theater around the country. And then the other category is just imports from England. But for the ones in the former categories, they're starting at these smaller theaters that seat not a thousand people, but maybe a few hundred. How important is that incubation period for developing a show? 
you mentioned the Atlantic Theater as the home for The Band's Visit, where it got those great off-Broadway reviews and it brought in some new investors and so on. How important is that collaboration, you're asking? Yeah. Is it to have those months at an off-Broadway or a regional theater to figure out what the show is, to make it better without the risk well, certainly there is economic reasons why one would do it that way. I mean, there's lots of shows that go other paths, right? There's lots of shows that just do workshops and do labs in New York and then go out of town to commercial theaters. The Share show that just opened, its out-of-town tryout was in Chicago in a commercial run. Tootsie, that's coming in later this season, had the same path, right? So not every show starts at a nonprofit. Yeah. For the band's visit, the nonprofit thing felt very natural. It was the kind of show that I thought certain types of subscribers would enjoy. It's a smart piece of theater. It's a piece of theater that I think really pushes the boundaries of the norm. It's sort of outside the mainstream. I think those are the kinds of things that make it suitable for subscribers of edgy theater companies, right? The Atlantic Theater Company oftentimes will push the envelope. They're an off-Broadway theater company. They're looking for new artists. They're looking for young artists. They're looking for exciting new work. And that's their mission statement. They're supported by their funders and et cetera, but for that reason. So for me, putting the band's visit into a nonprofit made a lot of sense. I ended up at The Atlantic after meeting with several different nonprofits. I admire Neil and his team. I also appreciated how honest I felt they always were with me, with their budgeting, our partnership, and our collaboration. I'm a commercial producer, so at first I think Neil had to sort of understand what my relationship to the show was because it was unique to have a commercial producer who was really as involved creatively as I was. Mm -hmm. um, actually, I don't know if that's unique. It's the way I was operating, and I was new to Neil, and he was new to me, so we had to get to know each other. But we pretty quickly kind of got into a groove, and the collaboration was, again, memory. But I thought it was wonderful. I mean, it was really productive. I think we had a lot of hurdles, but we all hung in there and we all stayed true to what it was we were trying to make. And the rest is history. We made it. So after those positive reviews come in at the Atlantic, do you find that suddenly your phone is ringing and people want to give you money? Oh, yeah. Yeah. At that point, I think we could have capitalized the show. Interesting. Three and times because over. of the. Oh, wow. And because the show is so Yeah, a intimate, lot of investors we had to say no to. I didn't have room to take in all the investment that eventually wanted. Look, it's a post-Hamilton world in the theater. There's a lot of successful shows. You have major hits from last season, like Dear Evan Hansen and Come From Away, which are these two sort of, I call, art house shows, right? They're not branded entertainment. They're yeah. smaller, more intimate shows. And they are continuing to reach a, just a huge mainstream audience. Now, my show is not that. But I think on the heels of so many successful Broadway endeavors, non-branded entertainment, Hamilton being also a non-branded thing, I think there was great interest in what was next that celebrated that sort of idea. And the band's visit fit into that category. It, was, it felt outside the norm. It felt edgy. It felt different. Yeah. So um, you were turning people down. Oh, yeah. By the time we ended up finishing our capitalization from Broadway, yeah, there were lots of investors who we didn't have room for. Yeah. That's fascinating. What do you mean not have room for? Well, you only can raise so much money. I mean, you raise as much money as you need. And you don't want to raise more than that because it's a business, right? You can't over, you don't want to overcapitalize it. You want to be responsible. You want to bring in as many investors as you need to operate the show effectively, have a little bit of a reserve to protect yourself in case sales don't go well. But I think at some point we closed. So we, we closed our books and said, okay, the fundraising is finished. And there were still people that wanted to be a part of it. Yeah. So because the show is so intimate, was there a part of you that thought this should remain in small theaters? Or I guess the commercial side of you maybe yeah, always had Broadway in that. mind. A lot of people ask that is like, oh, well, if you move to Broadway, it's going to be in this big theater and you're going to lose that magic of the Atlantic. And look, I think there's always something magical about being in a 200 seat theater in a, with actors in a room. I think that is a very unique 
and very off-Broadway experience. Our artistic success, I don't think, was ever based on that intimacy. I think great artists create intimacy. Hmm, that's uh, a cool idea. Great acting performances create intimacy. Great sound design creates intimacy. Lighting and set. I mean, these are all the things that go into what an audience member perceives as being intimate. So That's fascinating. So, right. So going to the Barrymore, which is like one of the most beautiful theaters, was I aware of the fact that sitting at the back of the mezzanine in the Barrymore was going to be a different experience than sitting inside the Atlantic Theater Company? Of course. But so was David Cromer. So were my designers and, and my composers and my writers. Everyone was aware of the fact that that was going to be different and we had to embrace it and try to create an experience for the people at the back of the Barrymore that was unique and that was worthy. But it's still an incredibly intimate experience. The, the sound is impeccable in that room. These theaters were built for intimacy. And in fact, the sound at the Barrymore in some ways creates even greater intimacy than you have in a theater like the Atlantic, which is an incredible space. But ultimately, the building that it's in was modified to become a theater, whereas the Barrymore was built to be a theater. Mm -hmm. and, and that makes a big difference audibly. I remember once had a similar audible sort of development when it went from downtown to midtown. And now we're getting ready to go on tour, right? Where we're going to play 2,500 seat theaters and we're going to play in big, big houses, twice the size of the Barrymore, three times the size of the Barrymore. And that'll be our assignment, right? How do you now take that? To, how do you artistically understand that challenge and make it as an experience that's worthy for anyone in that theater, whether you're in the orchestra or the balcony? Do you have a sense of where regionally around America it will play well? Like, is there a different appetite in Atlanta versus Boston? Yeah. I mean, all these cities are unique in their own way. Broadway's doing very well regionally. The touring business is strong. Subscribers to these Broadway, commercial Broadway series across the country are up. There is an abundance of interest uh, in Broadway. I'm excited for our show to actually play a lot of these markets. We've had a very warm embrace by the presenting community. We have a very large tour planned for a show like this. And it's a real testament to the presenting organizations, Broadway Across America, the independent presenters networks, all, all these cities across the country that have leaned in and said, we want the band's visit. We want this to be on our subscription. We want our audiences to see this. It's not your typical Broadway musical. And I think these subscribers are going to come in and see something that really is different, like the ad. Yeah. But that's great. To me, that's all part of the tapestry of how American audiences and how the Broadway brand is understood. The more elastic we can make it, the more we can demonstrate how Broadway, a Broadway musical can be so many different things. I always think that's good for the business. It shows that we're able to grow. It shows that we're able to make it, that we're a living, breathing thing. We're not stale. We're not stuck. Yeah. And also, besides attracting the possibly built-in audience of, of Jewish or Israeli theater goers or maybe uh, people who appreciate Arabic music and so on, there's also just the American ticket buyer who doesn't necessarily have that access point, but then their eyes are open to who Ulm Kultum is and the sounds of Arabic music and yeah. instruments. I've always had this thought in the back of my mind with our show that people don't really understand the Middle East. <laughs> and I'm not being judgmental of anybody. I just think we live in a world where the sort of the way the Middle East is presented in a 24-hour news cycle or on social media, our understanding of the Middle East, unless you know a lot of Middle Eastern people, is very filtered through a very political lens. A lot of people's experience of that is seen that way, is tainted in a way. So to give somebody 90 minutes of sort of an unfiltered, unpolitical view of what a night in the Middle East might sound and feel like, I think is beautiful. Yeah. And hear that music, so... I've gotten the sense from your trajectory in the theater that there's been the kind of thing where everything leads to everything. Like I'm thinking about how you had an, a, a show many years ago called Groundswell and you used it to 
apply for a fellowship in producing. And then that led you to meet Hal Prince, the legendary mm -hmm. uh, producer and director who became a mentor. Is that a, the common path in producing? Do you feel like your path was unique? I don't know. I don't know if it's common. If I had to put the people that are actually theater professionals at my level that are producing, my sense is they get into it one of two ways. They either do what I do, which is they kind of come in at a young age and they just work their way up. I was working in this industry ever since I got out of college. I've never, I think I spent one year of my life not working in the theater business since I graduated. So I've always been in this industry. I've always made a living working in theater. So I had a lot of those experiences. One thing leads to another. That's how I was able to build myself up to a place where I could be enabled to produce something like The Band's Visit. And I think there's another community of people that have other careers and have success in other fields and then come to the theater as a second career where they have probably greater, I don't even want to say they have greater financial opportunities. I think there's just two ways to come to it. I've, there are a lot of people that come into this business later because they find their passion later and they've had other careers behind them. I don't know. An, an eloquent answer. <laughs> well, I think it comes back to that kind of personable grittiness where you don't give up on that relationship or the convincing the next person or telling the person your idea and that leads to the next relationship. So it yeah. seems like it, maybe it's built into your personality or maybe it's something that you've honed over the years, but it's that kind of personal, personable grittiness to keep it going. Yeah. It's all need-based. It's like, I wanted to make a living doing this. So for me, it was always need-based. Like I had to do that. I had to find my way into people's lives, create relationships with mentors, people like Hal Prince who were very close to me and have had a huge impact on my life. I needed them and I was grateful for them. So I was eating what I was killing, you know, like this was my <laughs> life. This is what I had to do. Yeah. And when you feel that, I don't know how else I could have done it had I not just been fully invested personally into all these relationships. Yeah. As a last question, there was an interview that I read with you where you said, referring to why you went into the producing side of things and put aside the directing or acting pursuits, which you had tried in college. And you said, I think I'm way too in love with it, meaning theater, to actually be in it. I would miss not being near it. <laughs> and I really was struck by that idea of when you work in the arts world, there's different ways to come at it. You can be truly in it. You are the painter, you're the actor, and so on. Or you can be, as you put it, near it, where you are the person who facilitates its happening. Talk to me about that relationship where you're always just alongside the art. It's what I get excited about, I think, uh, is simply put. I get excited about ideas. I get excited about stories and staging ideas, uh, things that I think could make for an interesting piece of theater. But where I choose to exercise my strengths is in looking through the toolbox to find the right tools to try and guide and support a process with, with artists that I want to work with in order to get them to do their best work. I guess in a way it's not delegating. I've always been really interested in the environment that we create. Not as a director, I think, as sort of from like a 30,000 foot perspective. I always remember when I was in college and I was acting in a play, I would always be like obsessed with the temperature in the theater or like, did they have enough people in the theater? Did the programs look right? All these little things that if you're an actor, it's silly. I would never want to hire an actor that was worried about the things that I worry about <laughs> because as a producer, that would be terrible. I'd say you're an actor, focus on the acting. But I couldn't keep my mind on that. It wasn't where I was passionate. I was passionate about everything. And it's not because all I cared about were programs. It was because the experience of someone walking into a building, seeing a play and walking out, that entire thing was what I wanted to wrap my arms around. And so to silo my input and put it on a stage or put it into the director's chair 
never, it just wasn't what I was drawn to. And like I said in that interview, I think maybe what I was saying is that I, I admire great artists who know what they're doing. I admire writers. I admire directors. I admire designers. I admire what they do. So for me, that's when I was saying, like, I, I love being near them. I love watching that process in a way where I don't have to be in it. I think the distance that I'm able to create between myself and that thing that I'm trying to support is very satisfying to me. Oren, it's a pleasure talking to you. A pleasure talking to you, too. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And follow Places Everyone on Twitter. Podcast production and original music by Cody Crabb. Artwork by Jennifer Klockner. See you next time.